Well, if you would take your Bible and turn to John chapter number 9, John chapter number 9, and I'm going to, I will be honest with you, this outline is pretty ambitious. Uh, Usually they are, but this one isn't particularly pretty ambitious, but I'm going to try. Some of you didn't think I was going to finish last Wednesday night, but I did, all right? Uh, You naysayers out there. Uh, But uh, we'll see what happens tonight. Uh, No promises on this one for sure. But uh, we are going to look at Jesus Christ and his ministry tonight. And we're going to kind of look at the different aspects of the timeline, so to speak, of his ministry. And uh, we're going to start by reading John chapter number 9. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse number 1 and read down through verse number 5. The Bible says this, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. And here in verse number four, basically the Lord is saying, here's my ministry. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And by the way, um, that wasn't true just for him. That also should be true for all of us, right? We must work the works of him that sent us um, because the Lord did send us into the world to uh, preach the gospel to every creature. And uh, while it is day, there's an opportunity for us to work right now, but there is coming a day when uh, we'll no longer be able to. And so let's uh, let's be faithful in it. And so tonight we're going to look at Jesus Christ and his ministry. We're going to start first tonight on uh, discussing the purpose of Jesus Christ, why he came, what his ministry was all about. What did Jesus Christ hope... uh, want to accomplish, and what did he accomplish uh, while he was here on this earth? And so we're going to look at the purpose of Jesus Christ in coming to this earth. Why did Jesus come? Well, first, Jesus came to submit to his Father's will. He didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of his Father. And uh, now he mentioned that he is um, I'm going to read a, another passage here in John chapter number 5. John chapter 5 and verse number 30, it says this, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Um, so he, he came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father, and, and he was submissive to his Father's will. John 4 and verse 34 He said this to his disciples, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And so, first of all, he was obedient to come to this earth. Uh, Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. And when he was on this earth, he then was obedient to the things that his Father gave him to do. Here's another reference for you. John 8, 29, Jesus said, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Uh, And then he was obedient when it came to going to the cross. I mean, it was pretty easy. 
I suppose, um, to uh, do all the miracles and, and, and walk upon this earth and all those things. It, and, and I don't know because I'm not Christ. I, I'm just saying it, it, in comparison to what he was about to go through on the cross, those things were, uh, in my mind, easier. Uh, but then when it came to going to the cross, though, he was still faithful and obedient and submissive to the will of the Father. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, in verse number 39, here's what uh, it says here. Most of us are familiar with this, um, but uh, it says here in verse 39, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with, me, watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. So he came to submit to the will of the Lord, or will of the Father, and, uh, and then the Apostle Paul worded it in uh, Philippians 2 and verse number 8. Philippians 2 and verse number 8, the, the, great, uh, uh, the great passage here in, in Philippians chapter 2. But it says, "...in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." So he uh, was faithful to the very end. And, and, I, and I know it wasn't always easy for him to do the will of his Father... Um, but the Bible says in Psalm 40 and verse 8, what his heart was, he said, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Even though it was difficult, he still delighted to do the will of his Father and to submit to it. So really, in every moment, in every decision, and in every way, Jesus was totally submissive to the will of the Father. So his purpose was that. And, and as you and I consider what our purpose is here on this earth it really is the same thing, isn't it? For also us to submit to the will of our Father, our Heavenly Father. And uh, so uh, Jesus first came to submit to uh, the will of the Father, but then he also came to satisfy the law. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 17. Matthew five seventeen. It says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So he fulfilled, he satisfied the law and the prophets in several ways. First, he fulfilled and satisfied the shadows of the law. Those sacrifice and the tabernacle, all pointing to Jesus Christ. I remember Colossians 2.17, I talked about uh, that, that picture frame that I was holding and, of my wife and that picture of my wife and I was holding it and, 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 and that picture is wonderful and it's beautiful, but it's not my wife. And, and, and the law and the prophets were, were merely pointing to the fact that one day Jesus would come and, and he was the fulfillment of that. Colossians 2.17 says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So all the prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled all of those too and, and, and satisfaction of all of those prophecies. He was also in complete obedience to every aspect of the law. And uh, since Jesus satisfied the law, that means that we as believers are no longer under the law but under grace. 
Of course, lest we think that means we are free to live however we want and still be, you know, and still go to heaven, the Bible clearly declares that as Christians we are under a different law, the law of Christ. First John two six, he that saith he abideth in him ought also so to walk even as he walked. This law, by the way, is a higher standard than the old law. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you recognize that. Remember, uh, murder and adultery, uh, Jesus took us to a higher standard in all of that than the law had in the Old Testament. So the Lord came to satisfy the law. Now we must strive also to fulfill the law of Christ as we live our lives. The motive for following the old law was fear of punishment, but the motive for following the law of Christ is love and devotion to the one who gave himself for me. And that's our uh, memory verse for this month, a reference to that. So Jesus came to submit to the will of the Father. He also came to satisfy the law. He also came to seek and to save. Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, uh, who was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You can't mention his name without quoting some of the lyrics to that children's song. Uh, but in that passage, we learn why Jesus came to this earth. In Luke 19.10, he, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Which was, by the way, all of us. Uh, we were all lost in our sin, and there was no way we could be found on our own. There was no way we could find our way on our own. We needed someone to come and to seek and to save us from our sin. Matthew 121, uh, it says this, to the angel was talking to Joseph, and he said this, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So while we can't save anyone, we can sure seek those who are lost and point them to the one who can. So uh, once again, we find our purpose as we learn what his purpose was. He came to seek and to save. And then uh, fourthly, Jesus came to serve and to sacrifice. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if there's anyone on the planet who ever deserved to be served, it was the Lord Jesus. But that's not why he came. He came to serve, and, and uh, there in the upper room as he took the, the basin and that towel and girded himself and, and, and bent down and washed the disciples' feet was, an, was just an illustration of his heart to come to serve but then also to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his life for us. Philippians 2.7 says this, He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. He could have took upon him the form of a king, deserved to be, but instead he took upon him the form of a servant. We see his servant's heart and how he healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead. We see his servant's heart and how he served the disciples in the upper room. He served the bread and the cup. And, and we see how he also, again, uh, washed the disciples' feet. 
And he said in that passage, John 13, 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So if he was willing to serve, then really all of us should be willing to serve. I know there's things that we would prefer to do over other things, like in my home. I'm not really Mr. Dishes. Uh, I can do them. I just, I would prefer to, honestly, this, this is weird. I know. I'd rather clean a bathroom than do dishes. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It is weird. Um, but I would rather do that and, and, and clean the floors. And, but we, we, we ought not to have a, I don't do this mentality. As believers, we should say, hey, if the Lord was willing to wash the disciples' feet, really there should be nothing that's beneath me. That we're willing to uh, be servants at home, be servants here at church, be servants in the community. We are to serve the Lord. Romans uh, 12.11 says, Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serve in the local church, serving one another. Galatians 5.13, By love, serve one another. So we see uh, the purpose of Jesus Christ, but let's dive into number two here, the passion of Jesus Christ. As we consider the ministry, yes, that's why he came, but, but then now let's look at the passion. And uh, when we consider the passion of Christ, it's uh, a reference in, in Acts chapter number uh, 3, he says, By whom, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. And that's a reference that Luke makes back to when Jesus uh, sacrificed his life on the cross for us. See, thousands of years before it ever happened, the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus was promised. So uh, that's, that's letter A here. His passion was promised. We see it promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden as the Lord issues the consequences of sin. And to the serpent, the devil, God says in Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, uh, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's saying, okay, you're going to get his heel. You're going to see him die on the cross, and, and you're going to think you've got him. But uh, he's going to rise from the grave, and it's going to bruise your head. And uh, her seed is a reference to the virgin birth of Christ. So throughout the Old Testament, though, there were many events that would point to the cross of Christ. God sacrificing an innocent animal to cover Adam and Eve. Remember, they made, sewed fig leaves together, and, and God said, no, no that's not going to do. You, you need coats of skin. And uh, you need to see that sin requires an innocent animal's life, the, the innocent lamb that's going to have to give his life to cover your sin, pointing to the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would shed his blood to cover all of our sin. And then Abraham and Isaac, as uh, God tells Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, and, and he's about ready to do that. And then there's a lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. And uh, that, that ram is then the substitute. And, and, and we're, all, we're all Isaac in that scenario. We deserve to die. And Jesus is that ram that took our place, our substitute. 
And so it's all pointing to that. And, and then in the, in the book of Psalms, we have a wonderful passage of Scripture. If you go to Psalm 22 real quickly, we're doing okay on time. Hey, I might finish. Okay, I know. You think that's a joke. <laughs> it, it might be. Uh, but Psalm 22 is a Psalm of David, but it's, a, it's certainly pointing to Jesus there on the cross. It's a prophetical psalm that, uh, like even in the very first words of this psalm, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where else do we hear that in the scriptures? Well, when Jesus was on the cross. Look in verse number six. It says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised of the people. Now, David, I'm sure, felt that way, but nobody felt that way more than Jesus did when he was there on the cross and everybody had been yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Verse seven says, all they that, that, that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And people would do that as they walked through. Uh, the, when, uh, when Jesus was there on the cross, people were saying, hey, you're supposed to be God. Why don't you save yourself and come down? He says, where's your God now? And then look in verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like waxed. It is, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to, to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Remember when Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst? Now this was prophesied here in Psalm 22. And then let's just turn real quick one more uh, reference. Isaiah chapter number 52 and 53. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse number 14. As many, as, as many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So this is a reference to the fact that when Jesus would, the Messiah would suffer and die on the cross, that his visage, his uh, body would be so marred more than any man, and it was like gruesome. I mean, it was not PG. It was rated R for violence. The, the, it was a very gruesome picture, and, and, and I'm sure that uh, moms did not want their children seeing Jesus there on the cross because his body had been ripped apart, ripped to shreds, beaten to a pulp. He didn't even look like a man. And then Isaiah 53, um, I mean, really the entire chapter here. I won't read the whole chapter, but verse number two, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And, and there, I could read the whole, the whole chapter there, is all pointing to the cross. If we, uh, uh, then even in Bethlehem, there was a big clue that pointed to the fact that Jesus came to suffer and to sacrifice for us. One of the gifts presented by the wise men was myrrh. Myrrh was mostly used to embalm the dead. And such was the case for Jesus 33 and a half years later after his death on the cross. In John 19, 39, there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. So it was promised. And then Jesus, of course, promised it several times during his earthly ministry. One instance was Luke 9, 22, when he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and be slain and be raised the third day. So his passion was promised, but then his passion was also painful. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, there was tremendous, it, was, it brought tremendous pain. And what kind of pain did it bring? It brought mental pain. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we find him praying in such agony that the Bible says he prayed more earnestly. His sweat as were, was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So he, um, he was in great agony and, and mental pain that that brought to him. He was also very much humil humiliated and mocked. He was rejected by the same people who a couple days before were praising him. Now they were calling for his crucifixion. So he was betrayed, and, and that brought, no doubt, mental pain and emotional pain. But obviously, when we think of pain on the cross, we think of the physical pain as well. You see, he was scourged with a cat of nine tails, and uh, people began to hit him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, used a reed to pound it into his head driving those thorns deep into his scalp. Then they made him carry his own cross piece up the hill to the place of his crucifixion. And there he was crucified, and the crucifixion itself was a tremendously agonizing and torturous uh, form of execution. And Jesus was there, and he dealt with all of that. Yes, he suffered mentally and physically, but perhaps even more than all of those, it was painful spiritually. And uh, I believe this perhaps was the greatest form of suffering that he experienced. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the suffering that took place when Jesus took our sin upon him and became our sin is something that nobody in the room here will really understand the type of agony that that cost. Because he knew no sin. He was sinless, and yet he became sin for us. And at noon, when the sun was at its peak and brightest, the sky grew dark. In Matthew 27, 45, now from the sixth hour, which was noon, there was darkness over all the land into the ninth hour. And one commentator wrote about this, it was during that time that he bore the indescribable curse of our sin. 
In those three hours were compressed the hell which we deserved, the wrath of God against all our transgressions. We see it only dimly. We simply cannot know what it meant for him to satisfy all of God's righteous claims against sin. We only know that in those three hours he paid the price, settled the debt, and finished the work necessary for men's redemption. See, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer pain. So for those of you who are experiencing or going through a painful time, you are in good company. I want to encourage you to cast all your care upon him because he careth for you. So his passion was promised. His passion was painful, but it was also providing. It was providing. His sacrifice and death on the cross was not in vain. It actually accomplished several things. What did his passion provide? Well, it provided substitution. Um, Isaiah 53, 5, we read it a moment ago. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He took our place. He provided the uh, satisfactory substitution. We were the ones who should have been on that cross. We were the ones who should have been crucified, and yet he took our place. On the cross. First Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So he provided substitution. He also provided a, a, a theological 50 cent word, propitiation. The righteous demands of a holy God were fully satisfied on the cross of Calvary. His death was the satisfactory payment for sin. God was satisfied and His holiness was upheld. Romans 3.25, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, declares righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So He provided substitution, propitiation, and this is an easier word for us to understand. Forgiveness. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. We studied it a little, a little bit ago in our series in Colossians. He said, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and tooking, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So the Lord has forgiven you all trespasses, past trespasses, present and future ones. They're all under the blood. Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist declared. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That's what we needed. And he came to do that. He also provided justification. Justification is the legal act in which God, the righteous judge, uh, declares the believing sinner to be righteous. And, uh, and there, there's more we could talk about that, but he provided justification. He also provided redemption. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Most of us have heard the story, but in case you haven't, of the little boy who built a sailboat. He built the boat, had it all fixed up. He tarred it and painted it. 
eventually took it to the lake and pushed it in, hoping it would sail. Sure enough, a wisp of breeze filled the little sail, and it billowed and went rippling along the waves. Suddenly, before the little, little boy knew it, the boat was out of his reach. And even though he waited in fast and tried to grab it, as he watched it float away, he hoped maybe the breeze would shift and it would come sailing back to him. But instead, he watched it go farther and farther until it was completely gone. When he went home crying, his mother asked, What's wrong? Didn't it work? He said, It worked too well. Well, sometime later, the boy was downtown and walked past a second-hand store. There in the window, he saw the boat. His boat. It was unmistakably his. So he went in and said to the store owner, um, That's my boat. And he walked to the window, picked it up, and started to leave with it. The owner of the, boats, uh, the, owner of the shop said, Wait a minute, Sonny, that's my boat. Uh, I, I bought it from someone. The boy said, no, 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 it's my boat. I made it, see? And he showed him the little scratches and the marks where he hammered and filed. The man said, I, I'm sorry, Sonny. If you want it, you have to buy it. The poor little guy didn't have any money. He went home and worked hard and saved his pennies. And finally, one day, he had enough money. So he went in and bought the little boat. As he left the store holding the boat close to him, he was heard saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. Now, if you ever think that you aren't worth much, and if you think you're cheap, just remember that what God thinks of you, he thinks you're his, twice his. First, you're his because he made you. And second, you're his because he, he bought you on the cross of Calvary. And he didn't pay money for it. The currency he used was his own son. He paid a price to redeem you. So his passion provided redemption. Then I want us to look here again as we continue looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to look now at the power of Jesus Christ. Because the story doesn't end with him on the cross. Oh no, really, that just gives way to what comes next, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so very vital. And why, why was it such a priority that it happened? Well, um, it, it certifies our faith. And, and we'll get to the, um, the, the points on your outline here in a moment. But uh, without the resurrection, our faith is completely empty and void. Like, why are we even here tonight if Jesus be not risen? Why not just go home and watch TV? Why not just go home and sit in front of the TV and, and eat popcorn? And, and uh, I, I kind of wouldn't mind doing that. Uh, but here's the deal. Jesus is risen. There is a reason for us to be here tonight. R.A. Torrey said this, This was the glad tidings. First, that Christ died for our sins and made atonement. And second, that he rose again. The crucifixion loses its meaning without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the death of Christ was only the heroic death of a noble martyr. But with the resurrection, it is the atoning death of the Son of God. 
It shows the death to be, that death to be of sufficient value to cover all of our sins. For it was a sacrifice of the Son of God. In it, we have an all-sufficient ground for knowing that the blackest sin is atoned for. Disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Christian faith is vain. That's what, that's what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. In verse number uh, 13, he says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's empty. Like, why are we even here? But then he says, uh, verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that sleep. So Jesus is risen, and uh, it, it is a fact, and it certifies our faith. The bodily resurrection, Henry Morris said, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. But if it did play, take place, then Christ is God, and the Christian faith is absolute truth. So, yes. It also confirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, and I won't go too much into this, but no other sign could prove the deity of Christ quite like the resurrection. And uh, when Jesus came walking out of that tomb on Resurrection Sunday, it proved the fact that He was, in fact, deity. And last Wednesday night, we did talk about the nature of Jesus Christ, right? We talked about how He is a divine nature, and the resurrection proves that fact. And we saw He has a human um, nature and also a sinless nature. So the resurrection, it also completes the gospel. Uh, the first, first Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 mentions uh, the gospel, how it is the death, burial, and resurrection. See, no resurrection, uh, no gospel. You're yet in your sins. No salvation. Uh, Tony Bazin said this, the cradle and the cross are of little value without the resurrection. But the cradle plus the cross, plus the resurrection, equals salvation. It's a good statement. That's a good equation uh, for you math people out there. So uh, we're going to look at here the proof of the resurrection, and this is where we're going to get into those uh, blanks that you have on your outline. And uh, we'll get through this, and then we'll stop. So we're not going to finish, but that's okay. I didn't think so. Uh, there are several uh, proofs of the resurrection. And in Acts chapter number 1, Luke says this in verse number 3, "...to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." So uh, after Jesus resurrected, those forty days that he was uh, here at, right before he ascended up into heaven, there were tremendous evidences and proofs that Jesus literally bodily rose from the grave. What, what were those proofs? Well, the empty tomb and the grave clothes. And I've shared these with you before, but uh, we all need to be reminded and kind of get it in our hearts and minds so that we can um, have these things at the ready when someone is saying, I don't believe Jesus rose from the grave. Well, then maybe you can remember these things. And by the way, um, it's alliterated to help you and to help me too, but uh, to help you. The empty tomb, all right? The pyramids of Egypt are famous because they contain the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings, 
Westminster Abbey in London is renowned because in it rests the bodies of English nobles and, not nobles and notables. Muhammad's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. The Taj Mahal was built as a memorial to a wife of one of Indians, uh, Shahaz. Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. is revered for its honored resting place of many outstanding Americans. The garden tomb of Jesus is famous not because of what is inside, but because it is empty. Nothing in it. Um, Mackenzie wasn't trying to start a theological debate. She just wanted to make a point about Jesus' resurrection, and her Sunday school teacher had tried to encourage her class with the assurance that Jesus is everywhere. But for Mackenzie, that didn't sound right. But she said, I know one place where Jesus isn't. Teacher curiously replied, oh, really? Where is that? The bright little girl declared, well, he's not in the grave. <laughs> A great reminder, I'm not, our omnipresent God has chosen to keep his presence absent from the grave. For just as the angel said, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. So, uh, really, exhibit A is the empty tomb and the grave clothes. And John 20 and verse number 8 is going to talk about that. Um, well, verse number 7, And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then when in that other disciple, when he came first to the sepulcher, he saw and believed that the bones weren't there, but there was the grave clothes uh, right in their place. So the uh, exhibit A was the, grave, the uh, empty tomb and the grave clothes. Exhibit B were the eyewitnesses. As I said here in Acts 1.3, it says, uh, he, showed himself alive after his, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we see the, the phrase, he was seen, he was seen, he was seen many different times. And I mentioned this on, I believe, uh, Sunday night in my sermon there. But uh, verse number four, and he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to Scripture. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. He was seen of about 500 brethren at once. Um, verse seven, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me, Paul, also one uh, as of one born out of due time. So the eyewitnesses, Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection. Uh, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, the two disciples walking to Emmaus at the end of the book of Luke. And to the apostles multiple times. And it's not like these witnesses were crazies testifying, going, you know, well, we just had a little, um, you know, we, we hung out more and we went to one of the cannabis dispensaries. Uh, no, it wasn't like that. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. The witnesses to the resurrection of Christ were unprejudiced, unexpected, incredulous, and their honesty is not doubted even by skeptical criticism. So... 500 people come into the witness stand and declaring that they've seen him. You kind of get the picture after about 228. You're like, okay, I got it. Oh, no, we're not done. 229, come on in. Can we, can we be done? <laughs> nope, we're going to go through all 500 of them. Just to show you that this is not some man-made, made-up scenario. Um, the eyewitnesses. What else? The extreme change of the disciples. What happened after the resurrection with the disciples? Well, uh, Peter, he went from a disciple who denied the Lord to a disciple who declared the Lord 
to the multitudes on the day of Pentecost. What made that change? His encounter with the resurrected Savior. John, he went from a man who had total contempt for the Samaritans to a man who had total compassion for them in the book of Acts when he went to go preach the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. What made the change? It was the resurrected Savior. So the extreme change of the disciples and the fact that they were willing to lay down their lives and to stay faithful to the truth. We don't have a record of a single disciple who walked away from this truth. They all stayed faithful to the truth because they saw the risen Savior with their eyes. Extreme change of the disciples. Then we have the existence of the church. For thousands of years, worship took place on Saturday. But now all of a sudden, these zealous Jews change worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why would they do that? Saturday, worship celebrated the power shown at creation. Sunday, worship celebrates the power shown at the resurrection day. And the existence of the church, and even to this day, churches still meet on Sunday to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose again on Sunday. Now, while these proofs may not seem sufficient on their own, together they form an overwhelming case that proves that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, based on the many infallible proofs that we mentioned today, do you find the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be true? I hope the answer is yes. So that's the power. Next week, we'll talk about the promise of Jesus Christ, what he promised would be the future. I'm saying next week. Next week, we're going to have prayer service. Week after that. We'll talk about the promise of Jesus Christ and the present of Jesus. What is, he current, what is his ministry right now in our lives, according to the Scriptures? We'll look at that next time. Uh, but uh, let's pray and thank the Lord for who he is and what he has done for us. Our Lord, we're so grateful as we consider these tremendous thoughts, Lord, as we consider why you came, your purpose. Lord, we're blown away that you would be willing to come to seek and to save and and to serve and to sacrifice for us. Lord, we certainly were not worthy. But we are thankful that you're willing to do that. Thank you for submitting to your Father's will. Lord, help us to find our purpose in your purpose. Be willing to serve and to submit to the Father's will for our own life. And Lord, we are so thankful for uh, the passion of Christ. Lord, thank you that he was willing to come to this earth and be our sacrifice and substitute on the cross. Thank you for all that that provided in our life. Thank you for enduring the pain of all of that so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven and justified. And Lord, I thank you for the resurrection and the truth of it and all that it does in our life, how it certifies our faith and completes the gospel 